Hi, Dan Yeager here, and welcome to Museum People Live, which was recorded on Friday, November 11th, 2016, as part of the 98th annual NEMA conference, which was held in Mystic, Connecticut. It being Veterans Day, we had a terrific panel discussion with a group of museum professionals who are also military veterans. And sprinkled throughout the session, we also had our famous person on the street interviews, and we collected business cards to raffle off an interview. So join us now for the first ever edition of Museum People Live. is Museum People, a podcast that celebrates individuals connected with the museum field by highlighting their work, passions, opinions, and personalities. In each episode, you'll hear stories and viewpoints from a variety of museum people, unsung workers to executive directors, volunteers to trustees, as they help change the world one visitor at a time. And now, the hosts of Museum People, Dan Yeager and Marika Van Dam. Thanks for joining us. Marika and I got things started with our person on the street interviews, and we interviewed folks in our studio audience. Marika kicked it off with the first question, which was, what have you enjoyed the most about the NEMA conference? Yes. Hi. Good morning. Uh, I'm Chuck Clark. Um, I have enjoyed the social interactions. I think that's always my favorite part of coming to a conference, uh, is the chance to interact with our peers. Um, And I'm relatively new to the New England Museum world. I've only been here for three years, and this is only my second NEMA conference. So uh, it's nice to feel so embraced by the community of museum people that we're talking about. Thanks, Chuck. Hello. (laughs) (laughs) Give us your name and what you do and how you feel about the outcome of this election. Lord. put me on the spot. Um, My name is Elizabeth Nevins. I am a museum education consultant based in Boston. Um, I'm also the NEMA education professional affinity group co-chair. So I'm really happy to be able to serve all of you in that capacity and was able yesterday to provide a little bit of catharsis and some forward moving through our luncheon. Um, Obviously, I'm gravely disappointed, but I'm really happy to, again, as many people have expressed, happy to be here where I can be with like many like-minded people who want to take our time here together to think about next steps and how we as institutions can amplify our good work for the better of the future. <laughs> Thanks, Elizabeth. Right on. Um, is it me? Well, you said not to hog the mic, and I'm giving the mic <laughs> he's in not our pre... He's not, he's not, not, not hogging the mic. Hi. Okay. Long-time listener. Right here. First-time really? caller. Um, <laughs> uh, Carol, tell me uh, who you are and uh, why you think the museum work that we do is so important. I'm Carol Majahad, and I'm the director... Educator. My real title is actually executive director, which is a little tough to do when you're the only full-time employee and two part-time people, but that's the title. But um, I'm, I've been in the museum field for a very long time, as you can tell. And, you know, I, I've just, I'm still excited about it every day when I go in. There are days when you want to rip your hair out and all of that, when you have to do, you know, paperwork and bathrooms not working or whatever. But, you know, it's, it's that opportunity to connect with the people in the community. In our case, we don't have a lot of foot traffic, but we have a lot of programs where we invite people in. So whether it's adults or children, um, just to make that one connection and make them feel that the past, you know, it does matter to them, that where they live, as small a town as it is, does have an impact, that they're important, that there is hope for the future, that things have gone wrong in the past. But, you know, somehow we just self-correct and keep moving. That's to me. Thanks, Carol. We're all part of a, a long stream of humanity. Dan? My turn. Hi. <laughs> so give us your name, what you do, 
And what has been your favorite conference session so far? My name is Elena Cordova, and I'm the newest preservation specialist at NEDCC. And my wow, one of my peeps. Then I'm on the board there. Oh, great. Well, here I am. I was supposed to meet you, so I'm glad we're doing this live. <laughs> it's on <laughs> record. You did your job. Uh, <laughs> um, I think my favorite session, because I'm at NEDCC, was the one on disaster planning and preparedness, and it was great to see what small institutions are doing and getting the ball rolling to be prepared for all sorts of disasters, whether it's the election or a flood. Wow, thank you. Oh, um, <laughs> hey, Amanda. Um, tell us about you, and what do you think next year's conference should be about? Uh, hi, everybody. I'm Amanda Goodhart-Parks. I'm the Director of Education at the New England Air Museum. Um, I think next year's conference should be what my past eight NEMA conferences, this is my eighth year coming, um, have been, and it should continue to always be the best part of NEMA, which is everybody has kind of already expressed, and bringing museum professionals together in an environment that is supportive and engaging and inspirational, um, and give us you know, nuts and bolts, practical things that we can take back to our institutions, but also provide us with, with inspirational projects and ideas as well. So a combination of both the practical and the inspirational. Can you put a name on that for a title? Oh, you guys are looking for a conference title? Um, if, you're, if you're putting me on the spot, um, affecting change. Because it was this year's Museums and Social Action. Right. Well, we talked about right. all this wonderful social action. Well, now we need to affect change. There you go. Nice. Awesome. Awesome. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, so we're going to now have a blast from the past. Linda, what's the greatest obstacle to museum success? Fear of failure. Wow, she's consistent <laughs> anyway. Good. On point. <laughs> Linda Norris. Thank you very much. That was kind of a half thing there. That wasn't really a... You can ask a question. Another All right. I'm going to ask want. Lynn a question. Lynn, say who you are, what you do, and tell us what you think the theme of next year's conference should be. Hi, I'm Lynn Baum, and after 30 years at the Museum of Science in Boston, I am an independent consultant working in evaluation and program development. I think building on the issues that have been so popular this year is to continue to think about how we collaborate and create community and social relevance in our work um, within our halls and within our broader communities. So um, I, would, I would go in that direction. Thank you. Tell, tell us uh, about you and what you do and who should... Uh, museum people, all of us, even podcasts, who, who should Dan and I interview next? If we could interview anyone. Wow, that's a challenging question. Um, I'm, I'm Pam Van Hawken. I'm the operations director at Castle in the Clouds in Maltenboro, New Hampshire. Um, who should you interview next? Wow. Should it be the president of the United States? I don't know. Um, I, I think there's some great people that would love to come and talk to both of you. Who wouldn't? <laughs> what a setup. Yeah, thank you. Okay, I think we have time for two more. I'm going to do one, and you do one up the front, okay? Okay. All right, great. So, hi. Give us your name. What do you do? Say how you're connected to NEMA, too. Throw that in, okay? Now, and tell us one thing that you think museums really do well. Okay, my name is Melissa Houston. I am the digital content manager at the Barnum Museum and this year's NEMA Fellow. Yay, Fellow! And one of the things that I am proud of museums for doing well is representing and being passionate about different ideas, different opinions, different art, different history. Excellent, thank you. Okay, um, last question, Scott. Um, when we were outside, you said, oh, I'm not really, I don't really consider myself a museum person, but what do you bring to the table not being a museum person? Uh, Scott Richardson with Gorman Richardson Lewis Architects. We work on design of museums, so we interact with, obviously, museum personnel and uh, users and uh, 
uh, well, I love going to museums. It is actually one of my favorite things. It drives my wife crazy because it's like, well, what do you want to do today? Well, go to a museum. Well, you've been there a thousand times. I said, yeah, but every time you go, it's a little different. It's rejuvenating, and it's really important. Our panel discussion with military veterans was a real hit, and we were very excited to welcome onto the stage Ted Gaffney, the director of facilities at the Florence Griswold Museum, Van Shields, the executive director of the Berkshire Museum, and Terry Dickinson, the chief of staff of the Preservation Society of Newport County. Welcome, gentlemen. Thank you guys so much for joining us. Um, maybe if we could just hear a little bit about what your military service was to get a little perspective. And um, just a quick, I did that, I did some things, I ended up in museums, however you want to connect all that. Who should we start with? Ted, because you're closest? Sure. Sure. Um, I did 20 years in the summary for service from Hawaii to Washington to Maine to um, New London. Um, Retired as Chief Petty Officer, a Chief Radio Man. And then uh, my last duty station was in New London. And from there, <clears throat> um, well, we got a home, I guess. Uh, from there, I, I like that part of, uh, of New England. I, I'm, I'm kind of happy with Southern New England. My wife was kind of happy with Southern New England, even though, even though she'd rather wa- go back to Washington or Hawaii. But mm-hmm. you can't always do that. Um, and then about a year after my retirement, position became available at the museum, and I knew the director from a previous uh, encounter, and we, we, we kind of clicked. Uh, he needed a um, facilities manager or director of facilities, and I've been there since 2004. Uh, it's, yeah, it's a little bit different than what I had before, but the people are great. Uh, there are a lot of dedicated folks, different folks from what you normally see in the military, but that, that actually is an interesting challenge and um, actually kind of fun. Cool. Um, hi, everybody. I grew up in a military family and, and under the influence of my father went to the Air Force Academy. I kind of figured out about halfway through that I wasn't going to make a career of it. But I was in the Air Force for five years after that and um, and then I was a, uh, tried to get into the museum business and was rebuffed after one job interview and then I was offered an opportunity to go into business with some family members and I became kind of a serial entrepreneur. That was my deferred life plan. Eventually um, came back uh, to do what I've always wanted to do, which was to be in the museum business after my wife went back to school to get her MFA at Columbia. And she kept saying, this is the museum capital of the world, now's the time, now's the time. And I kept saying no, because as Frank Hubert said, you know, um, in Dune, fear is the mind killer. And uh, I kept resisting. And then finally she said, I'm not coming back. And that made up my mind. And I started my first uh, museum job at the Museum of the Moving Image in New York in 1991, and I've been in the business ever since, and I love it. Great. Thanks for having me. Good morning. I'm Terry Dickinson, the Chief of Staff at the Preservation Society in Newport County. Uh, I did 22 years in the Navy. I enlisted as a sailor. I was a photographer back when we actually used cameras with film back in 1973. I did that for about seven and a half years. I was too poor to buy a refrigerator, so I needed to do something. So I went to officer candidate school and became an officer because, of course, they don't do any work and they get paid a lot more, which is both of those were wrong. I found true. that out later. But uh, I did 15 years as an officer and uh, uh, shipboard assignments. I was uh, a uh, navigator on a cruiser. Of course, I had to use my GPS this morning to get here from, uh, from Portsmouth, Rhode Island. Uh, I was also uh, a lot of work in missiles, combat systems, and that kind of thing. And uh, uh, after the 15 years as an officer, came upon retirement. Originally, I was going to be a school teacher. I went to the program at the University of Rhode Island, the teaching program. Uh, I took all the courses necessary. I student taught. I substituted. But unfortunately, it was just that time where there was no job openings. In the, in the meantime, I was a serving as a tour guide at the Marble House and the Elms on the weekends. And since I could not get a full-time teaching job, I, uh, I got a full-time job at the Preservation Society. For about four, four years, I was in charge of all the visitor services. And then in 2000 or so, I became assistant to the CEO, and that evolved into chief of staff. And I've been doing that for the last 17 years. I used to say when I would come to these meetings of NEMA or AAM that uh, I don't know anything about museums, but after 22 years, I, I don't say that anymore. Thank you. <laughs> well, guys, tell me, is there anything that... Uh, the military has done to sort of inform your day-to-day work in museum life? 
Anybody? Well, one of the things that has always um, uh, been of value to me is, um, and I went to an engineering school, but I have a, uh, a bachelor in, of science and humanities, so it's a little weird, but, but I've always appreciated the systems thinking and, and the kind of um, sort of uh, data-driven um, approach to management, if you will, mm -hmm. and just and trying to organize systems so you're reducing duplication of effort and you're getting things done. And, and all of that was probably a function of just operating in a tremendous bureaucracy. Uh, bureaucracy can be very effective if, it's, if it sort of uh, smooths things out and makes it possible for you to focus on what's really important. So I've always thought that was part of my background that came through my military experience. Yeah, yeah. One of the things that I, I, I brought from military life is uh, sometimes if we're not careful, we think in sort of linear fashion. We start at A to get to Z, and if we get stuck on B, we stay there until we figure out and we continue to move on, whereas the military, there's usually a time crunch, usually have uh, deadlines and things to happen. And so you're always thinking of alternatives, your options. If this doesn't work, how do we go around it? How do we go over it or under it? And so that kind of thinking that uh, uh, of moving around obstacles and, and uh, that kind of thing has been helpful to me in the past yeah. years. Yeah. I agree with Terry in that respect. Um, I also find that the, the Navy helped me with problem solving yeah. you know, um, and always looking for a backup plan to a backup plan. You always have to figure what's, what if and do we have something to deal with it if something you know, goes south. Right. So museums are similar to the military in your mind? Well, uh, in some ways, I mean, I'm, I'm a person of habit, conservative habits, I hope, and routine. And I have a routine very set every morning just to make sure everything's safe, that nothing's burning, nothing's flooding. I'm in facilities, so that's what my, my bread and butter is. I, and I, I interact a lot with the curatorial department, but I also interact with every other department in the museum. So I'm kind of like the go-to guy in a, in a lot of instances, some of the most mundane things and sometimes the most challenging. But it, still, there's a routine which I find comfortable. Um, but there's always also a twist. Yeah. It's the same way with the military. The military had routine, but they always had a twist, especially in submarines. <laughs> <laughs> I think that... Watch your head. In the, yeah, in the, uh, I think it's... Sort changing now based on my discussions with these guys about uh, more recent experience with the military but one of the, th the hallmarks of the military at least in my experience in the past was that it was sort of a closed system and so when you had to do a job uh, yes you had to in fact there's a lot more creativity creativity of course is not limited to artistic expression creativity happens in problem solving and in the boardroom and and in the engineering cell and so on and so on so there there's a lot of that but you basically would have the resources available to 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 take care of whatever um, challenge or, or job you had in the moment whereas in in, in civilian society there and, and in the museum business there's a lot of a lot of variables it's more of an open system and so, you know, it is always a challenge to, like, as a director, my challenge is to make resources available to people and then get out of the way and empower them. Terry had some interesting thoughts earlier on that idea of, um, of delegation and of delegation of duty and, and getting people. I thought that was interesting. You should oh, share that. Yes. I was thinking of that as I was driving here this morning about the, the word creativity. Of course, in the museum field, that's, that, that's the hallmark of museums, I think, is creativity, whether it's art, historic house, museums, or whatever. You're always thinking about how to, number one, how to preserve what you have, how to present what you have, how to interpret it. But in, in my mind, it's a similar thing in the military. There's a lot of delegation in the military. Uh, there's a task. It's delegated. And a lot of times, I would give someone something to do, and I would say, just, just make it so and then let them go out and be creative and, uh, and come up with their own uh, plan of action, their own ideas. Uh, because when it's all said and done, people in the military, people in museums, we're all people. And so we all, we all have the same mind. You know, uh, we all think the same way in certain things and that kind of thing. We all have creativity. Uh, but one other word I was just thinking as we're sitting here that uh, I think is important for museums as well as in the military. There's a lot of, in the military, there's a lot of pride 
in what in your unit and what you do what you accomplish overcoming challenges and i think that's something to be even more promoted in in the museum world to be proud and i know we are but to really say that word out loud and be proud of of our institution and what our institutions are doing i think that really reinforces the connectivity between the different people in the uh uh, in your organization as being proud of, of where you are and what you're doing. Okay. That's great. Thank you. That's, that's what we like to think Museum People is all about. Yeah. The podcast. Um, Ted, you said that uh, you encountered different folk than you saw in the military in the <laughs> museum. Could you expand on that, please? Well, submarines had no women for 20 years. And just recently, they've been... Are there, been are there women in museums? I yes, I have yeah, lots of women yeah, in the museum. Quite a few of them. But, no, and more lately. I mean, I went, I've been on show duty, but I've served with women, so it's not such a culture shock or such an awkwardness. And, uh, and they were excellent work workers and great sailors and great shipmates, I, which I just never went to see with, with a, a you know, with women, women's population. Um, not that it's anywhere or anything to do with my bearing, but I could see real challenges on, on that kind of... Um, that yeah, situation. So the uh, there's that wasn't really yeah, a big deal. Uh, I married one after all, thirty yeah, years. Yeah. We're all right. <laughs> so, yeah. um, we have a lot of people in the mil uh, the museum world. From I, I'm in an art museum, and their background was artistic, um, curatorial, uh, creative arts painters. Uh, they all have these great skills, um, and it's it's a strength for them. It's a strength for the museum because our education folks, for instance, are, are also great artists. I think they're very. They're very creative in, in their crafts, and, and the children come in. They're great educators. So there's, there's strengths among what, you know, what I normally think of as museum people, which I don't really see a lot in the military. Military tend, tend to be more like the engineering types. They are not such humanity-focused or on the fine arts. Um, so... I mean, I guess I have to say most of my job is the nuts and bolts of the, of the, of the physical plant, the infrastructure, and making things sure the roof doesn't leak and so on and so forth. I, interfe I interact with all my other colleagues, and I think, I think highly of them. But they don't really think about the roof leaking unless it's on their desk, and then they, then they call me. So. Um, Van or Terry, do you have any comments? Do you, does your military service come up at work? Um... Yeah, actually, when I applied for my first job in New York City, um, the director who hired me told me that there was quite a bit of discussion on the fact that I had a military background and whether or not I should be hired. And apparently, her husband, who had taught philosophy at the Naval Academy, said, "Well, he's probably okay because he's probably okay." And so she hired me. And uh, and then in my first director's job, um, the um, the staff had arranged a program where they took um, took turns taking me out to uh, um, from place to place for my interview. It was like one of these th three-day interview things, and uh, each staff person had a role to play to find out who this guy really was. And one of them was talking to me about the military, and I said, "Wait a minute, are you are you trying to find out whether uh, that's going to be a problem for you that I've been in the military?" And and uh, so it was kind of funny. Uh, and uh, I think that the you know, one of the things that I think is that we all sort of uh, talk about honoring our military, but at the, but at the end of the day, there, there have been times in this country when the military has not been appreciated. And I lived through one of those times, and it was very painful. And, um, and one of the things I learned is that, or one of the things that's always stuck with me since that time is that the military is an instrument of national policy. The military shouldn't be blamed for what the politicians do with the military and uh, or ask the military to do. Now, there is the, the little problem of the military-industrial complex, but at the end of the day, it's just um, sad that sometimes in our history that we haven't embraced the people who have actually gone out there and, and protected us. Mm. <laughs> so, following up on that, is, is there something that museums can and should be doing to try to basically restore and rehabilitate the, you know, the pride, the honor, uh, the desirability of service in the military, which I think is waning a little bit now. Not as much as perhaps it had been in the past, as you're suggesting, but you know, it just seems like, okay, 
like what is it about service that needs to be boosted and how can we help? Well, that's a good question. I think that the, um, um, I think that sort of sense of uh, openness and welcomeness and, and accessibility and inclusiveness is a very important principle in museums. It's certainly uh, a hallmark of what we do at the Berkshire Museum, that the sort of idea of being participatory and, and engaged in the community, that's probably step number one. And then also to make sure that you're engaging um, those uh, people in the community uh, broadly enough to make sure you take in to that uh, Big Tent uh, veterans, but also interpretation around, I think a lot of museums perhaps don't go there with regard to that part of our shared heritage, the military history in some ways, unless they happen to be a military museum. And so I think maybe more of that sort of um, possibly from a curatorial point of view and a, and a public history point of view would be good uh, so that you know veterans can kind of see themselves in, in their museums, not just their military museums on, on an army post or, or an air force base or naval base. Why that do you think me. museums don't go there? Um, I think, well, I think there's probably a prevailing sort of uh, sentiment in the museum community at large, and this is a gross overstatement, so I'm not going to state it, but I'll hint at it. <laughs> there's a, probably a prevailing, um, you know, maybe a little bit of uh, distrust in the, in, among people and the military. I mean, let's face it, as a child of the 60s and 70s, I, you know, I came from a, a moment where I was in the military, but I was also sort of anti-military in terms of, um, you know, what was happening at the time. But again, finally making the realization that the military was a, a, um, an instrument of foreign policy that was in the hands of civilians, ultimately. So, but I think, you know, a lot of people would rather that war go away, and a lot of people in this community don't see the sense of it, and it doesn't make any sense to them that people kill each other for no reason, for imaginary reasons. And so there's... The military is always associated with that to some extent, so I think that might be a little part of it. We need to kind of forget about that, or maybe not forget about it, but learn how to make it a platform for real mm. conversations that are meaningful and substantive in the community. The other two gentlemen agree, disagree that? Well, <clears throat> I think that uh, a lot of our museum workers are educated uh, along a liberal bias. I think because they're coming from prestigious East Coast schools, um, and their teachers are, of course, children themselves of, of the time that the military was looked at with ambivalence, if not an outright antagonism, while these professors were, were young kids or students. Mm -hmm. So I see this as lingering, and, and then my, my colleagues are good people, but they're not conservative people right now. And I don't mean that in the, in the political way, but I do mean that I do see that we, they're, they're hesitant. I don't know if it's called political correctness. I'm not even sure if that's the term I would use. But they don't want to offend, or, nor do they want to, um, I mean, it, it's almost like patriotism is old-fashioned. So let's not bring it into, yeah. the, into the subject. Yeah. Let's not bring it into the show, because it really, you know, how, how is it interpreted? Do we fly flags on Veterans Day? Do we fly flags on Fourth of July? I mean, there's museums that won't. Yeah. And why is that? I'm just, I'm sitting here, I'm thinking that there's, a, I think sometimes people think the military is like the movies, and I always tell people the military is not like the movies at all. It, it's, a, it's, a, uh, it's a little bit different than that. And it's, it's sort of one-dimensional for people that are not in the military. They, they just sort of see this one-dimensional, these people go out and blow people up or blow up buildings and this and that kind of thing. But in fact, the, rarely. The, the, rarely. the military is, is, uh, is made up of people, and uh, they, they have wives and kids and partners and girlfriends, boyfriends, whatever, and, and they go out, in the Navy, you go out in the ocean for periods. Someone asked me yesterday, what was the longest you ever been out in the ocean without touching land? I was only out for 111 days, and, and I know that Ted here has probably been out longer on a submarine. That's a long time to be away from your family. And, uh, and then you come back, and then you get ready, and you go out again. And so there's, I think if the people in the civilian world, and I realize I'm a civilian now, but when you've been in the military for a while, you always think of us and them. It's part of the, part of the mindset. 
but that there's the uh, sacrifice of being away from, from home, being away from your kids, your family, that kind of thing, and the dangers involved. I think we can all imagine, if we want to, that it's not just people in a war that's dangerous. Being on a Navy ship is very dangerous. When you're two ships 140 feet apart with a, with a wire between you and you're passing missiles back and forth, uh, that's, that's dangerous. And, uh, uh, and so the, the, the sacrifice, being away from families, the sacrifice in, in terms of the dangers involved, I think if we all just step back for a moment and think about that, then we can uh, you know, better appreciate what the military is. It's not just a one-dimensional just army going around blowing up stuff. Uh, but I was also thinking that what museums could do, particularly, is, is reaching out uh, to the National Guard because there was a time when the normal active military folks had a different mindset about the state's national guards. But in the last 20 years, particularly with the issues in the Middle mm-hmm. East, the National Guards are regular soldiers and, uh, and, and military people, and they've done everything they can do. So I think if museums reach out to the National Guard uh, in their states and their communities, the reason I say that is because the National Guard, more than anybody, are your neighbors. They're, some of them work in your museums. And so they're closest to you versus other people that may be in a, on a military base someplace. And so I think if museums made a concerted effort, NEMA and other uh, regional organizations, to reach out to their state's National Guards as a first step in a, really uh, promoting a, a relationship between military folks and the civilian population, particularly museum uh, workers and goers, I think that would be very helpful. So if anybody uh, yeah, here yeah, in the so, audience... Right, yeah, so we're going to do question. audience questions. Any uh, questions for our panel here in the Welcome audience? Back. Over here. Former Museum People podcaster right there. Hi, all. Um, my name is Lori Pastor Yaklamar, um, and I just wanted to say a special thank you to you gentlemen for, number one, for your service, as well as speaking today. Thank um, you. I, I had the... Um, blessing to work with the USS Constitution Museum when I first started my career and um, partnering of course with the United States Navy as well as the National Park Service Um, and our director and CEO at the time was a West Point grad Uh, the chair of our board was a veteran of the Marine Corps Um, and I was always struck especially as a young person in the nonprofit field about the remarkable leadership um, that those two gentlemen uh, presented and in very different ways. Uh, I was taught immediately that there is no one right way to be a leader, um, but that the effective communication as well as um, the transition between um, roles that each individual played within a greater community and the camaraderie that happened out of that leadership and the respect. Um, I have no longer um, working with a leader who has military service background, and I feel that something can be offered from our veterans as well as you three in speaking to leadership in the museum field, um, something that I think we all always have questions about. So I I don't know if you can speak to at all about that and how that kind of affected your lives as well as in the museums that you now work in that you feel maybe it could provide some type of service. So number one, thank you, and... Leadership. Um, I'll say a couple things about that. Um, it's interesting because uh, one of the fundamental principles in the military is um, called uh, cover your rear. And that's not exactly the same as cover your ass, but it's, it's similar. And it's really consolidate your rear. And so the idea is if you're advancing forward, you want to make sure that you're protected from behind. Um, but basically, you want to make sure that the people that are behind you are supporting you. And, and leadership has no path. I mean, by definition, if you think you're actually creating the path, otherwise you wouldn't be in the lead. Um, I think leadership is uh, one of the things that I think comes out of military experience is a certain amount of courage to be able to take risks and not be risk-averse and to be able to sort of stand behind that. And... and um, you know, obviously there, there are uh, risks that are taken that are um, calculated, if you will, so there's, there's that. I think that also the ability to sort of be in the moment uh, and be tactical, speaking of strategy and tactics, but also 
very strategic in what you're trying to accomplish. That's part of leadership thinking in the military, and I think it can be very useful uh, in a director's position, obviously, to think like that. I, uh, leadership is um, and discipline sort of go hand in hand also. So um, one of the good things about the military, whether you like it or not, is you're probably going to have more self-discipline when you have had a military experience than when you started. I think that was certainly true for, for me. Um, and that's a very good thing because if you can't govern yourself, how could you lead other people? So it's, uh, you know, there's a lot of good stuff that comes out of the military in that leadership arena. Also management, if you think of those two things together, which are not always the same, you can be, I think, an effective manager without being an effective leader. Um, and uh, uh, leadership is certainly something that we need when we're trying to engage with the community and create substantive and meaningful and memorable experiences and and be at the center of important conversation. So anyway, that's my two cents. Well, I'm a retired lieutenant commander, and I'm going to delegate to Chief uh, Ted here to answer next, and then I'll think of something to say. That's leadership. <laughs> uh, you know, I have 20 years in the summary service. Um, I had a number of, of captains and department heads, and chiefs would, who served as my mentor. Um, and I think some of the strongest points I see in these gentlemen is, are, is communications, clear, precise communication, uh, accurate decision-making with all information that's brought to the fore, and also accountability. And these things all could be really applied to any situation, but, and I think they would be applicable certainly at museums. Um, I, I, myself, I think that those, those kind of qualities, the experience that, that you, would, um, you would have within a military career, could be very valuable in any leadership level, whether it's, in, it's the board of trustees or the director trying to get your machine or your museum, rather, on the proper course, or just day-to-day -day activities on dealing with your maintenance cycle, which is something that's constantly ingrained in any, any senior enlisted person. You have a cycle that things have to be repaired, and you don't ignore that. Um, but I also understand that the museum is full of so many different people, eclectic uh, skills, different um, backgrounds, that... And you might have to treat with, with kid gloves a little bit. You know, a, a, cur a curator that comes from a very um, cerebral background, for instance, not quite strong in the nuts and bolts, but a brilliant you know, you know, thinker, I guess, or you know, a speaker or a brilliant scholar, if you will. Those are the kind of people that um, may, may not react so positively to military strengths, if I can put it that way. So there's a certain amount of tact that would be involved. I think uh, leadership is, a, is an art. There's no book that's going to teach you how to be a leader. You can get a book, but that's not going to necessarily get you where you want to go. But leaders learn along the way. And really uh, successful leaders try to find a way to connect your dreams and your goals and your visions to the vision or the goals that the general or the admiral or commander or whoever has been tasked to, to make happen. And, uh, and so a real successful leader connects people to what's going on. In the movies, as I said earlier, people bark and scream and, and direct and order. But in the real world, in the military, you don't do a whole lot of that because it's not going to help you. After you'll, boot camp. After boot camp. Uh, and you'll, uh, there's two things I was thinking earlier this morning along as I was driving. There's two, two memories I will never forget. My first day in the military and my first time alone giving a guided tour at a mansion with a bunch of people. And they don't know that I don't know anything. And we've already taken their money. So, uh, but, uh, which we did not give back. But, uh, uh, but I think uh, leaders inspire people. And one of the adages that's, that gets tossed around sometimes in the military, you lead people, you manage things. You don't manage people. You lead them. And we've all of us here have been in the military, and we can remember one or more leaders that we had. It may have been 20, 30, 40 years ago. Mm -hmm. We still talk about them because they inspired us. And so, so uh, to connect to what your earlier question uh, people do uh, sense a, a leader. They're decisive. 
They make a decision, and they uh, connect, and they get people to not to do things because they're afraid they'll get in trouble if they don't, but because they will let the leader down, and that's the worst thing they could ever do in their mind is to let the leader down. And so that is real leadership, is to have people that will do anything for you because they don't want to let you down. Another, another question here. Laura? Hi, I'm Laura. And thank you because, uh, and Laurie, I also start, I also spent some time at the Constitution Museum and recently had the joy of working with the gentlemen who were working to create a museum in the Providence Armory, the men largely of the Rhode Island National Guard. Um, and one of the things that I noticed among them, not so much at the Constitution Museum, but among those gentlemen was an enormous sense of camaraderie and of really, um, at, they were able to tease each other and be comfortable with each other in a way that I've never seen in a boardroom before or since, um, which was really an interesting lesson for me. Now, I will say that when the generals on the board spoke, the young men pretty much shut up and stopped really contributing to the conversation. So I think there was probably a double-edged um, question, issue there. Um, but when I, I've had a, a young student, a, a woman who was a Gulf War veteran who was working at the Rubin Museum and who created wonderful programs for recent returning veterans. The Rubin Museum is a Buddhist art museum, and so it, it lends itself to a different kind of contemplation. And she also was very aggressive in taking advantage of programs um, from outdoors organizations to rejuvenate and restore young veterans. Um, and I'm wondering, uh, your service is a bit behind you, um, but if you could help us think about, um, other than simply offering free admission to them and their families, what ways museums can provide a, 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 a real service to returning veterans and their families, uh, given our unique strengths and assets? I, that's a, a really terrific question, and um, you know I would say that you're you're probably right. Free admission is not enough, and you know even though I'm sitting here talking about creating substantive and meaningful programs, I have not done that. My institution has not done that with regard to specifically serving um, the veteran population. Um, but I, I think there's you know we we have objects. We have objects that have the the power to transport people, transport people to a different time and place. We have objects that breathe life into the moribund. We have objects that um, that create new kinds of experiences. So it's possible. I mean, it's it's we know it's possible to take those objects and create some meaningful uh, experiences, perhaps for veterans that might connect them with the past, present, and future in a way that sort of helps them maybe transcend a little bit recent experiences or, or maybe they need to dwell in their in their in their grief. I, I don't know, but that's a really thought provoking question. I don't have an answer except it's gonna make me think about this and and it has challenged me to think about what I can do and my institution can do. Hi Laura. <laughs> uh, I think that one of the things and, and this is bigger than just veterans, but I'll come back to veterans in a moment. I, I think a lot of people look at museums as elitist institutions and a lot of folks would never go into an art museum because they don't know how they're supposed to act when they get inside or they're supposed to know what that painting or the painter was trying to do when they created the painting are they supposed to know something about it or they're supposed to sit there and ponder it and look at it and reflect or they don't know how to behave because they don't know anything about it and so people are afraid of museums and to bring that down to the veterans, because I do think museums offer a lot to everyone. There's a chance to reflect, there's solace, there's a chance to inspire. That's what museums do, and uh, they touch all the human emotions. And if there was a way to help break down, even focus on veterans and their families and breaking down that barrier, don't be afraid. 
entice them to come in. You don't know, have to know about Impressionist paintings to come in and look at the museum and, and really break that barrier down that it's not just a bunch of people with art degrees or who may have painting collections at home that go to art museums, that it's okay. In fact, it's better than okay. We need and want them to come in, and when they do get there, particularly veterans and their families, they might find things there that can help them. So that's that's. I have a... Um a grant writer some years ago rather half jokingly said that art saves lives is trying to justify this money she's trying to raise and it's been this phrase kicking around the museum ever since and, but in a real sense we, we do believe it does save lives and it certainly eases the soul and set, you know, of, of our people our hurt people to come in we all probably have seen some kind of uh, experience where art has actually been a transformative experience for the, for the injured and the sick that's it Thank you. Thanks so much. Folks, give it up to our veterans. Thank you. Thank you so much. Terry, Van, Ted, thanks thanks so much for being with us. Appreciate it. Dan, I thought that was a really really thoughtful conversation, and uh, it made me think of myself differently. Yeah. 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 It makes us all think about that service what do we do yeah we? it was just so great i mean we've never had in my memory a, you know a conversation about veterans before so great idea for the podcast yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah well it's time it's raffle time hooray someone is gonna win big look under your chairs right yeah no there's yeah. no you know yeah there's no material thing here it's just the uh, fame and glory opportunity to be interviewed. Else, oh, yeah. Somebody else. It has to be an unbiased thing. Completely unbiased. Okay. Here we go. Okay. They're picking. They're over here. Literally the first person who put it in the basket. Is that right? It's Charles Clark, Yay! executive director of Castle in the Clouds. Come on. There you go. Chuck. Chuck. So, where do we want him? I don't know. Oh, let's put him up here. Yeah. All right. Cool. Yeah. Hi, everybody. So, wow, all right, this is great. Wow. I, I, I know Chuck a bit. I visited his home. Well, he has a fabulous home. It feels like I in, live at the museum, but I actually don't. Up in don't. the clouds, yeah. It's like, what an incredible place. Well, tell, so why don't you tell us a little bit, Chuck, about um, what, what you do and where you do it. This is your opportunity to give your place a plug. Okay, well, everyone should come to my place because it's a place of beauty and wonder. Uh, I'm sure we all feel that way about our museums. Uh, It's not Disneyland, but it's almost as cool. Uh, I'm the executive director at uh, Castle in the Clouds, so we already have a great name to start with. Uh, That's in scenic and beautiful Moultonboro, New Hampshire, uh, which is on the northeast shore of Lake Winnipesaukee, basically right in the middle of the state of New Hampshire. Um, I've been the director for two years, and I was there for a year before that as uh, the operations director. So like I said uh, in the, the quick hits earlier, I've only been in New England for three years. Um, so I moved here for the job yeah. at the when castle. I was for 15 years at COSI, which is the science center in Columbus, Ohio. Wow. Uh-huh. My, no my mountains first there. No, no museum mountains job. There, huh? No mountains there. Right. Lots of cornfields. My first museum job was actually overnight security for Girl Scout sleepovers. Wow. Uh, which is kind of fun. Uh, and my team makes fun of me because one of the activities we did on those sleepovers was Dance Mania, uh, where we would get the kids to dance like crazy before bedtime so they would actually sleep while they were in the museum. Uh, so. Um, I didn't dance a lot last night. Yeah, I didn't I, want to I, show you I all that. I wanted that last mm. night. Yeah. I wanted some mania. Yeah. Uh, and you said, what do I do? I think um, I look at my job as the executive director as surround myself with the best people and let them shine. Mm. Uh, and I have a wonderful team, so that's easy for me to do, to let them uh, do their thing. Uh, and uh, I love it. It's great. Yeah. What, what's the different? How is the scene different? Um, up in New Hampshire from Ohio? Uh, so the big thing that's different for me is that I, um, I'm not, I have not been in my life a history buff, and now I'm running a historic house. Uh, so that's been interesting, but it's been fun to draw the parallels because there are some cool scientific advances in our house. The person who built it was very forward-thinking and cutting-edge when he built his home. 
Um, so I think it's I've been able to draw some parallels there. Like what? What were the advances? Uh, so he had like a whole house vacuum system built in, and he had he was the first person in Moultonboro to have a working telephone. Uh, so he had a phone and he couldn't call anyone because no one else in the town had a phone. Um, and he had um, uh, he there were lots of springs on on the mountains where he built, and he had um, a, a cistern system with running water and a fire suppression system, um, and an ammonia brine refrigerator, so he didn't have to cut ice out of the lake to wow. keep his food yeah. cold. Yeah, yeah, it was pretty cool. Mm-hmm. So when people come up to your place, what are they looking to get? Visitors, what are they? What are they looking to? What kind of experience are they expecting? What do they get? Oh, that's a good question because I think that we are lucky because we have several ways for people to engage with our museum. Uh, we definitely get a lot of people who come up because they're interested in the story and in the house itself, the architecture and the way it was built and the story of the man who built it. Um, but the other thing that we've been talking a lot about as a team recently, um, both at the board and the staff level, is that. Um, Part of the reason he picked that location was the beauty of the site. Uh, and we are starting to do a better job of engaging the people now who also come to enjoy the beauty of the site. So they come and they, they can hike on the trails, they can sit on the terrace and have lunch and look out at the beautiful vistas, which is something that it's very easy to imagine uh, Mr. Plant, the man who built the home, doing as well. Hmm. So this is your second year at the conference, you said? This is my second year at the conference. Have you had uh, a light bulb moment so far? Uh, well, I've got to say, the panel discussion we just finished was fantastic. It, um, one of my best friends at my previous museum was a, a former military member, and I can remember com- hallway <laughs> conversations with him about leadership and how his experience in the military had helped to shape what he did, and it's interesting because he was also in the facilities world, like one of the panelists was. Um, But I think that was one light bulb moment. I also went to the session about being um, an empathetic museum, uh, and I think I didn't get anything actionable out of it other than I really want to keep having that conversation uh, and think about what are we doing as a museum to be a more part of our community. I mean, it's Sometimes it's hard for us to feel like a piece of our community because we are literally on top of a mountain overlooking all of them. Uh, And I think that's a barrier for us in getting down off the mountain, and I think it creates a barrier for especially locals, not the people who come to the area on vacation, but for locals to feel welcome and like they can come up the hill and visit with us. Mm. That was eye-opening for me, too. When you come to a conference like this, do you come sort of with a goal in mind? Like, I need to solve a particular problem or kind of in the back of your head, there's some, or is it just kind of absorption? You know, I think that that answer has changed as my career has progressed. When I went to conferences early in my career, it was all about nuts and bolts. Give me the thing I can take back and do. Um, but now, especially in the executive director's role, I'm getting more and more out of the hallway conversations and the after-hours events where you can sit and go deep on a subject. Um, so I was thinking, I was looking, I was thinking about how I'm going to report back to my board, and I, I took notes in the sessions I went to, but I need to take some time and really consolidate those hallway conversations because those are as or more important than the sessions I went to this time around. I do that, too. I tell my board, well, here's what I talked about with some people, and here's what I'm hearing from the field. Um, I don't think any of them listen to the podcast, but sometimes I just insert my own opinions and say someone else (laughs) said them. (laughs) Sure. Thank you. So, Chuck, what's your biggest challenge up there in the clouds? Ooh, that's a good question. Well, I think we always are facing the same thing all of the museums are as far as balancing what we want to do with the financial realities of our museum. Um, I think for us a big thing um, is that we've been undergoing for the last year and a half, um, kind of starting with my entrance as the executive director, um, to think about what the next decade of life is going to look like. We've gone through our infancy and teenage years as a museum and now we can start to really expand and and be a grown-up museum, which is fun and exciting for me and the staff in particular. Um, I think one of the fun facts about our museum is that at three years at the museum and a month or so, three years and a month or so, I'm the most senior member of our management team. Mm. So um, you can look at that in two ways, and I choose to look at it in the very positive way that we're coming together as a team with new ideas all at the same time, uh, and we can build on momentum together, which is exciting. Mm. 
One more question. One more question. Is it you or me? Can I ask you two a question? Oh, yeah, This man. is one I always like to I'm ask gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm And then I'll answer it, too, because <laughs> I think it's a fun story. Um, what is your favorite museum experience of your lifetime? Uh, haven't we already talked about this on a prior have. episode? Uh-oh. Yeah. No. I no, haven't no, no. listened. No, we haven't actually. It's never been plugged to us that way. Favorite. favorite. It doesn't have to be biggest. Favorite. It can be small. Um, yeah, so I was recently in Tampa, Florida over the summer for the first time ever, and um, it was for a family wedding, so a lot of my family was there. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, we, I took them to a museum, and it was so fun. And we took selfies together, nice. and like, the museum tweeted it, and it was just it felt really nice mm-hmm. to be there with, with my family. And my Uncle Joe even came. And he doesn't go to museums. Oh, yeah. It's always fun to get a non museum person to come with you. It it was really meaningful. That's good. I always love surprises. Uh, I go, as you might expect, to a lot of museums. And most of the time, though, I'm not really doing the museum experience. I'm meeting with people or talking. So, it's it's fun sometimes though when I steal away from those meetings or if I have a few minute, minutes before I go, I try to check things out and uh, sometimes it's just like I, boy I didn't expect this from this place, and I remember an experience um, maybe a year or so ago I was at the RISD museum for a workshop or something and um, I, I don't know if I had ever been to RISD museum or maybe it was a long time ago but mm-hmm. I remember you know being done with the meeting it was you know kind of a stressful day not necessarily the meeting but you know a lot going on in my life and i started wandering through and all of a sudden they, uh, there's this big statue of a buddha mm. in this like little room with some low lights and a little bench that just seemed so inviting and i just buddha's looking so peaceful so i sat there and I'm like wow and I got up, and I really felt refreshed. You know, it was just mm. like one of those things after sitting there for a few minutes, and, you know, like, I didn't expect that. You know, I expected yeah. to, like, head to the bar for my, you know, relief or whatever. Sure. But it was just nice to, you know, do that. So those surprising moments are the things that I always take away. Never yeah. expected it, but, like, wow, this is cool. That's it's good. Great. I like that. Yeah. So it, the reason I suggested this question will become apparent at the end of my story, but uh, it was from when I was a part-time educator at COSI, mm. Um, and one of my many roles was working as a summer camp counselor, and we were working with seven and eight year old kids, and we were doing amusement park science. And one of the big themes, because they're seven and eight, that we talked about the whole week was potential energy versus kinetic energy. Uh, and we culminated the week with a trip to the local amusement park uh, to take these kids and have them experience the science that they had been studying. And we had this one kid who could not get potential versus kinetic he, it, he couldn't wrap his head around it, it was fine uh, and so we were there and they the kids got on the ferris wheel and the counselors and I stayed down on on the floor and the ferris wheel went up and it stopped and then when it started to move again the kid who'd been having trouble all along screamed at the top of his lungs down to us I have Connecticut energy uh, and I thought that was an appropriate story given where the conference is happening today but that's my Seeing that moment where a person has had a museum experience and then the light bulb goes on. That wow yeah. moment or that moment of inspiration is always yeah. what I go back to. So. Chuck, wow. We, Thank I you. think we got another partner for Museum People. He's a great interviewer, you know? <laughs> I'm happy Give it up for Chuck Thank Clark. You. Thanks, Chuck. Unbelievable. Well, Marika. Well, Dan. I think what this means is there's a season three of Museum People coming. Somewhere along the line. That's the train gonna... has left the station. <laughs> if I pressed record correctly. Correct. No. Anyway. That's great. Yeah. Um, how did you feel that went? Chuck's interview? No, all of it. Oh. We already established Chuck was great. Yeah, all right. No. The panelists were great. The whole thing. I don't know. It feels good. How does everybody feel it went? That was actually just total pandering, wasn't it? it? Give me applause. Give me yay for us. Whatever. Really. All right. The audience demands it. One person. Well, yeah, we've got a little. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that was. Yeah, that. All right. Here's your fifty cents. Uh, Man. Well, yeah. So I'm excited about this. I mean, the museum people has been. Uh, you know, a little bit of a transformative experience for me, too. It's really charged my batteries because I love talking to people, and I know you do as well. And, uh, you know, it's just like, man, holding the microphone out there and hearing people's stories. We've got a lot of interesting people in this field. Yeah? 
Dan was like, you know, who are you going to interview at the, at the conference? And I was like, I, I feel overwhelmed. Every single person I meet has a fascinating story and um, some great advice to share for all of us. So maybe the lesson here is keep having those hallway conversations. And you can tape them, too. If you have an iPhone, send it in. That would be fun. Yeah. We should try that. Yeah. Sending in stories. That could be well, dangerous. Museum story core. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah. Well, you edit. So oh, that, yeah, right. Funny. I edit everything. Yeah. Okay. Anyway. Well, that's it. Dan, it's been a pleasure for me. It's been a pleasure As for me, always. too. Yeah, yeah. It's been a lot of fun. Okay. Thank you, museum people. We love you, museum people. People is a production of the New England Museum Association, which connects, inspires, and empowers cultural institutions to provide their communities with deep and authentic experiences. Have an idea or comment for museum people? Go to nemanet.org/museumpeople to provide feedback, get information about episodes, and learn how to subscribe. Thanks for listening.